Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. So there's a variety of of responses when people think about demons and Satan. People have a variety of responses to that idea. Some people just dismiss it as amusing. And you've probably seen a movie somewhere along the line where there's a, there's a Satan character in the movie who is kind of the comic relief, you know, and it's kind of like we just make fun of, of Satan. Or then those of you who remember, go back far enough to remember the far side, many far sides had as their subject matter, you know, Satan. And it's just making fun of, of what's going on, not taking it seriously. There are other people who, who take demonic uh, the uh, demons and Satan very seriously, and then they try to harness that power for their own use. And so there are people who tell fortunes, for example, and they're, try- they're harnessing the power of evil for their own personal benefit so that they can make money. Um, or they, they're in some cultures, people cast spells or curses on people that they don't like. Um, trying to harness the power of evil for their own purposes. And then there are just there is a group of people who are fearful, fearful of the power of Satan and, and demons because they've experienced something in their life that they recognize as supernatural that was too much for them. It overcame them. It's something that they can't control. They recognize they can't control it, and it's, it's scary to them, and they live in fear. And so we're going to look at a passage today that records Satan forcing his way into the mission of Jesus. And we should understand this morning as we sit here that anytime you are on mission with God, you can expect resistance. You should expect resistance. So being on mission with God doesn't have to look like going across the the world on a mission trip. Being on mission with God is when you decide that there's something in your life that needs to change and that you need to invite God into. That there's something in your life where the turf has been taken over by the enemy and you need to, to invite God to take it back. And so that could be your marriage. That could be a place in your life where there's a struggle And maybe you haven't really battled that from a spiritual point of view. And so you're now saying, I want to invite God into this because I know this is going to take spiritual power to overcome. If you do that, if you decide to get serious about that, if you decide to say, I'm going to read scripture, I'm going to see what God is calling me to do and to change and to pray over my family and to be serious about that. If you decide to do that, you should know you will encounter spiritual resistance because that's turf that the enemy does not want to give up. If you have a child who is going off base, off track, and it's not the way you taught them, brought them up, 
and you start to pray for them. You start to say, God, I'm going to stop lecturing and I'm going to start really praying and asking you to move. I'm going to start like looking at scripture and, and speaking scripture over them to, to see you move in this situation. When you start to do that from a spiritual point of view, you will encounter resistance. If you have a conflict with someone, it's just ongoing and someone at work, if there's anywhere there's a space where the enemy, there's evil going on at whatever level, and I realize we're talking about you know, lots of different levels of, of evil. Some things are much smaller than others, but if it's not God's will and you're moving into that space and saying, God, I want your will to come here, you can expect and you should expect resistance. The reality of Satan is simultaneously very sobering because he is real and he is powerful. But it's also simultaneously very encouraging to know that there, though he is powerful, there is someone more powerful. And we can choose his side, the more powerful side. And we're going to look this morning, we're going to talk about how to do that. And so if you would take a Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We are going to continue our series looking at the final, the last week of Jesus before his crucifixion. And what we're seeing here is, <coughs> I'm going to go ahead and pop this cough drop and You can either listen to me cough or listen to me slurp on the cough drop. So, you know, we're going to choose slurping. Um, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders is mounting to a climax point and eventually, of course, will result in Jesus' crucifixion. But there's another conflict behind the scenes that is, is more sinister and more powerful that we're going to see here today. So starting in verse 37 of chapter 21. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Reading right on into chapter 22. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. All right, so pause here for a second. We are getting close to Passover in this week. Passover the week of Jesus' crucifixion happened on Thursday. So right now, what we're reading today is happening around Tuesday or Wednesday. Passover is drawing near. Passover is the most important festival for the Jewish people, both historically, because it's remembering a historical event, and spiritually, because of what God did in that exodus, that historical event. We're going to talk much more about that next week, because next week we're going to look at the Passover meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. First service, we're going to look at that. By the way, so next week, you can just make it a marathon morning at Grace Point. So just if you want the regular service and our continuation in Luke, come to 9 o'clock, and then stay on into 10.30, and we're going to devote that whole 1030 service to the focus trip that we just took. And, um, and we're not going to talk about it the whole time. We're going to celebrate our connection with the church there, and we're going to be doing worship, and we're going to be doing testimonies and, and that kind of stuff. So 
And then you can stay for lunch. So after your marathon, you can stay for that whole thing. Both of those are going to be simulcast, by the way, or live streamed, and you can watch them later or whatever. Um, but if you're going to spend the time watching them at home, why don't you just come and just experience it in person? So next week, we're going to be talking about the Passover meal that Jesus shared with, uh, with his disciples. So a few weeks ago, Steve talked about the fact that uh, to accept Jesus is our greatest choice. And what we see here is two groups of people making different choices about Jesus. What we see here is crowds who are clamoring to hear him. So in chapter 21, verse 38, early in the morning, all the people came to Jesus in the temple to hear him. They are clamoring to hear him. He is magnetic. He is drawing people to himself. So some people are choosing uh, to, to at least respect him as a hopeful Messiah. They think there's something really special about him. Meanwhile, the religious leaders are seeking to put him to death. That's what we see in chapter 22, verse 2 that we just read. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. We're seeking, present tense verb, this is an ongoing project for them. They are trying to get rid of Jesus because they feel like it is their duty to do that. It's their duty to protect the orthodoxy of, of the Jewish religion because this man is coming. He's teaching different things. They don't believe that he is the Messiah. And so they need to protect the people. And they also are concerned because Jesus is so magnetic and he's drawing influence away from them and they're the ones that have the truth. And so there's a very different dynamic going on here. They feel it's their duty to get rid of Jesus, but they're stuck because if they try to get rid of him in public, when there's people around, the people are going to revolt. I mean, the people are just going to be like, what are you doing? And they're going to lose all their respect for these religious leaders. So they're stuck until, verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them, how he might betray Jesus to them. And they were glad and agreed to give Judas money. So Judas consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. See, this is the moment they've been waiting for because now they have an inside man who can watch Jesus' movements. They can let him know. They can let, um, this inside man can let the religious leaders know when Jesus is going to be by himself, be vulnerable, and they can come and take him. This, think about this, this is a really strange alliance because on the one hand, we have these religious leaders who have opposed Jesus from the very beginning. They have... Um, they, they never believed that Jesus was who he said he was, never believed that he was Messiah, Son of God. And then you've got this, this follower of Jesus. You have one of Jesus' closest followers. He's one of the inner circle that Jesus chose. They are forming an, an alliance. How can that happen? This is someone who has spent three years with Jesus, hearing him teach and preach. He agreed to follow Jesus. He must have thought Jesus was something, some kind of special. How could these two really different groups form an alliance? Well, Luke tells us in verse 3, Satan entered into Judas. So I, I want to use this verse here this morning to, to raise a question, and then we're going to go to some other scriptures to answer that question. 
So this raises some questions. Um, actually, it answers some questions about Satan. First of all, that he is real. He's not, Satan is a person. He is not an embodiment or a symbol of evil. Some people try to explain Satan in that way. He is actually a person, and he is a sentient being with will and purpose that is all bent on opposition to what God wants. So that's just his, his MO. That's just his defining how, what defines his purpose in existence now is to, to oppose anything that God is about. And so we see Satan for the first time near the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, uh, tempting Jesus, trying to get Jesus to sin. Because if he can get Jesus to sin, then all of Jesus' mission will be ruined. But Jesus triumphs over him. We see Satan there at the beginning. Now we see him. We don't, we don't hear anything else from him, the whole book of Luke, until we get to the end of Jesus' mission. And just, like, just as the religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus, Satan wants to get rid of Jesus. Because Satan recognizes who Jesus is. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Imagine God come to live among us. Satan recognizes that. And Satan says, and Jesus says, the kingdom is beginning now. He's come to announce the beginning of his kingdom. And Satan says, no, this is my turf. I'm not giving my turf up to you. And so he wants to get rid of, of Jesus even more than the religious leaders do. So he proactively intentionally inserts himself into Jesus' mission. He entered into Judas Iscariot, says, in verse 3. What does that mean? He entered into. Well, I mean, probably a natural question would be, is this demon possession? So we probably have some familiarity of demon possession, whether you have familiarity in Scripture or from movies. I mean, you've maybe seen a movie where somebody's head spins around and, and that kind of thing, and we're not really concerned about how movies portray demon possession. But if we ask the question, what does demon possession look like in Scripture? What we see is if you read the gospel accounts and you see people... Uh, where Jesus cast a demon out of them, told the demon to leave, what you always see is some kind of physical manifestation of that demonic possession. So you would see someone, for example, being mute, can't talk, and so Jesus casts the demon out, and now suddenly they can talk. You see a demon throwing someone into the fire. You see... um, just all this erratic behavior. You see them cutting themselves. And so we don't see any of that with Judas. There, there's no record of any kind of physical manifestation with Judas. In fact, at the Passover meal, Jesus says, the, the, hand, the, the person who's going to betray me, his hand is right here with me at the table. And everybody's like, well, who is it? Is it me? Like, who? They, just, they have no clue, no idea who it might be because, I mean, Judas just kind of looks normal like everybody else. So it's probably not demon possession. Um, 
you know, we don't have to split the hairs to even kind of figure that out. Scripture doesn't answer the question, so it's okay. What Scripture does answer, what Luke does tell us is that Satan is entering into Judas and somehow he is energizing now the decisions and the actions that Judas is going to take. And so I think it's worthwhile to ask the question, what opened the door for this? Because it's, it's, a, it's a scary thought, and it should be a very sobering and scary thought to you and me to think that one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples ended up falling so far that he would allow himself to be satanically influenced to betray the, the Son of God. That should be really sobering for us because sometimes we look like we're doing the right thing, believing the right thing on the outside, and yet, obviously, on the inside, there's something else going on. And there's something going on where there's not a real belief, there's not a real trust in Jesus and a, and a true heart that is following him. So we should be sober to say, if, if this can happen to, to Judas, we, we're not above this. How can we guard ourselves against this? And that's what we'll go to some other scriptures to answer before we, we end here. But while we're talking about Judas... I mean, if we ask the question, what opened the door for him? It's not clear from, from Scripture. What was his motivation? People speculate about his motivation. Maybe some people think maybe he turned on Jesus because Jesus was not bringing the kingdom the way he thought it should be brought. I mean, we, we read a few weeks ago that people were expecting the kingdom to come immediately. And maybe Judas was expecting that. It wasn't happening. And so he's like, okay, Jesus, I'm done with you. Or maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand to bring the kingdom. He's like, okay, let's just bring this to a head. Let's get the religious leaders in here. If, if Jesus is backed into a corner, surely he will rise up and be the conquering Messiah that we've been waiting for. Or maybe it was just plain old greed. I mean, he got money for betraying him, although... Um, it's not specified here in Luke, but elsewhere we know that he got paid 30 pieces of silver. That's really not a lot of money. He probably could have gotten a lot more money out of this because these guys are so desperate to get rid of Jesus. So it's probably not greed, but we don't know. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to fill in blanks for Scripture. Or we sh shouldn't definitively fill in blanks in Scripture where Scripture leaves blanks. I wonder... If it wasn't left blank for us, that we don't know his motivation, because if God had spelled that out for us, we might be apt to say, oh, well, I would never do that. I don't think like that. I don't operate that way. Maybe he left it intentionally fuzzy so that we could say, you know what? If he could be vulnerable to this kind of impact, so could I. And so I need to be on guard against that. So now let's answer that question. How do we avoid falling into Satan's hand to be used. And I want to just suggest for us today that there's a spectrum of how what we're talking about here. Clearly, Judas being used by Satan would be the pinnacle of how that could happen in our existence. Anything that you and I experience, if there's somebody in our lives that is used by Satan in a way, or if we're, God forbid, used that way in somebody else's life, any, any of that pales in comparison to this. This is the, the pinnacle. But on a, on a spectrum, I, I think we could probably all agree that we all have vulnerable moments where we're, we're tired or we're frustrated or whatever, and there, there might be a moment where we get used in a way to, to do something that is damaging to another person, somebody else who is on mission with God. 
we may actually get in the way of that in some way, not even be aware of it. That's a sobering, sobering thought. And so Peter and Luke teach us how do we guard ourselves. First, um, Peter, um, and this is significant because Peter is the next target for Satan after, after Jesus. We will talk about this in a few weeks. Um, if you are there in chapter 22, you can go down to verse 31. Jesus speaking to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. We, we know, many of us know, that Peter did falter. His faith did falter. He denied Jesus. And then he wept bitterly after that. So he speaks from experience when he talks about Satan coming after him. And we see this in his first letter, 1 Peter 5.8. <laughs> Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So the first admonition to us is to be watchful. Be watchful. Be careful. This, this, this sounds a little bit like Jeremy last week, if you were here, right? I mean, Jeremy talked about watch yourself and stay awake. So watch yourself. Stay ready for Jesus' return. So this is not just about watching ourselves. This is about watching out for Satan and how he might want to try to get uh, and mess with God's mission that we are on. So, so Peter says, be watchful. Satan is not fiction. He's not entertaining. And he cannot be harnessed. So he is on the prowl, Peter tells us, always testing for weak points in the fence. And so we should be aware of this. Again, when, when we are, well, I'll come back to that. He's, he's always testing for weak points in the fence. He's looking. If you're strong spiritually, he's going to look for someone else around you who is not as strong, and he's going to try to influence through that to take you off mission. That doesn't mean that person's an evil person. In Judas's case, he was completely taken off track. In Peter's case, he was taken off track, but he was able to come back on track. The devil is on the prowl, testing for weak points. Um, Paul says this in Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That Greek word there for schemes is methodias. The devil is methodical. He, he's not haphazard. He's not just out, you know. He's prowling, and he is methodical, and he is testing the fence to see where he can get in and take more turf. See, spiritual battle requires spiritual defenses. And so we, we don't have time this morning to look at Ephesians 6 further, but Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, core armor to put on in the battle against Satan. And we should be especially watchful when we are involved in a spiritual undertaking. So the, the trip that we just went on to Lebanon was really interesting. The week before that, um, the team met, and we were sharing prayer requests and things that were going on in our lives. And it was amazing because um, one person was just, like, overloaded with all this stuff, and they were thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to be so distracted when we're gone because I have so much stuff going on. One person was dealing with a, a physical pain that 
was potentially going to be limiting to mobility while we were in the country. So it's like, what's that going to look like? One person's computer completely um, crashed and had to be replaced and rebuilt, had to get all of their stuff transferred. And I mean, that may not sound like a big deal, but it, you know, if you work with a computer, you know how essential that is. So all these things are like happening. And we were like, okay, this is a good sign because it must mean God wants to do something on this trip because he's trying to distract us. And it wasn't that uh, necessarily somebody's even going to get kept from the trip, but just be, be there physically and be completely distracted on the trip. Many of you know the situation with Joan Zeberlein, who was planning to, to be on the trip and then found out just a few days ahead of time that her mother is, is dealing with some very serious medical issues. And so I don't, I actually, I, I don't know how all of this works out behind the scenes in the spiritual realm. Was that an attack of Satan to keep her from the trip? I don't know, but I do know this. I know that God was gracious to her in allowing her to find out that information the Monday before the trip and not the Monday while we were on the trip. Because if she had found that out while she was over in Lebanon, the whole trip would have been lost to her. And she was right where she needed to be. So God was so gracious. Maybe the enemy did that to try to interrupt her ability to the trip, but God used it for good. And God's just like that. He's awesome that way. But we should know when we are on mission with God that we should uh, expect resistance. And so we should be watchful. I love, I love what Peter says. He says that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He's roaring, and that sounds scary to us, but he's not a lion. He's like a lion. He's toothless. He has been defeated. Jesus is the lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah who has come to conquer all and to be our king. And so he's just like a lion. We, we don't need to be afraid of him anymore because Jesus has conquered. So maybe you're listening to this today, and, you're, and maybe you haven't really taken Satan very seriously, but maybe as I'm talking about situations in your life and resistance and stuff, you're recognizing, yeah, maybe this is what's going on, and maybe this is a little scary for you. Can I just reassure you with two things? The first is that Jesus has defeated Satan that, that Jesus did not give in to Satan's temptation, either at the beginning of his ministry or any, anywhere along the way, in the end of his ministry. Jesus has, has conquered. And, and it's, not even in, it's not an even match. I think sometimes we think, oh, you know, it's good versus evil, and we're, it's like they're duking it out, and there's tug of war, and it's going back and forth, and we're just not sure how it's going to turn out. There, there, there is no contest here, really. Because Satan is a created being. Jesus is not. Satan is a created being. His powers are limited. Now, I don't, I don't understand fully why he's given such a long leash. He has been given a long leash. And we see the power of evil manifesting in so many ways in our world right now. That's real. But when it comes down to a face-to-face -face battle between Jesus and the enemy, there's no contest. There's no question about who is going to win. So that's the, that's the first place we see that is in Jesus' temptation. The second place we see it is um, when Jesus, throughout his ministry, is casting out demons, he does that with a simple word. He has so much power. See, there were exorcists in Jesus' day who were trying to counter the uh, people who had demons, who were possessed by demons. There were exorcists who had all of these um, 
chants that they would do. They would have incense. That they, they had this whole elaborate process that they would do to try to drive these demons out. Jesus did none of that. Jesus just spoke a word, and the demons were gone. And that's why people were like, man, we have never seen anything like this. We have never seen any power like this. And then later, he gives his followers the authority, and they say, and they come back and rejoice. And like, Jesus, the the demons submitted to us in your name. It's because they were using his name, and the demons had to submit. So this is, so take comfort in that. I mean, Jesus wins the war and the battle. And, and this, Jesus said this in Luke 11. He said, it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. And you've got to love this, that it's the finger of God, not the hand of God. He doesn't even need his whole hand. He doesn't need his arm. He's, all I need is a little finger. He's gone. There, there's no contest here. Take comfort for that. So the first thing that we need to do is be watchful. Be respectful because he is powerful. The second thing that we can do is to be filled. Be filled. Luke loves to talk about being filled with the Spirit. So I'll just give you three quick examples here from the the book of Acts. Peter, in in Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and it's talking about a crowd of people that he's preaching to, rulers of the people and and elders. Actually, he's talking to the, the rulers. He's confronting them. We don't have time to look at the whole thing, but it's very powerful. This is Peter who who denied Jesus. He was so cowardly that he couldn't even say to a servant girl that he was a follower of Jesus. And now he's standing up to the religious leaders, and he's, because he is filled with the Holy Spirit, he delivers these powerful, powerful sermons and confrontations in the book of Acts. In Acts Later in Acts chapter 4, speaking of the early church, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And then later in the book of Acts, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See, here's the thing about being filled with the Holy Spirit. When, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's no room for Satan to enter. The more filled we are with the Holy Spirit, the more yielded we are. And Paul tells us how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, specifically from Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So he's making a really insightful comparison here. Do not be filled with wine. Do not get drunk with alcoholic spirits, which cause you to lose control, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And lose your control to the Holy Spirit. Be yielded to what he wants you to do. That's how we are filled with the Spirit. And the more filled you are with the Spirit, there's no room for Satan to enter. You and I are going to face battles. I mean, just everyday battles. Things in your home, things in your workplace things in your marriage. There's going to be places, there are places right now where, where the enemy has turf. He has, he has possession of space, in, spiritually speaking, 
And, and God has you in a place to take that space back for, for him, not for you, not so you can be in control of it. It's so that God can be king over that. That's, that's battle right there. But Jesus gives us everything we need to, to overcome. And so I want to end coming back to Peter, 1 Peter 5, reading further in his letter. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And here's, here's a hopeful part, okay? Here's a word of hope to you. The battle's not fun, but here's the word of hope for what comes later. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the battle, the battle's not fun, but the battles are just suffering for a little while. He's called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And so let's be watchful. Let's be filled. Let's be battling well. And let's look for his victory that comes from his strength. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for overcoming every evil in this world. There's nothing we need to fear because nothing is more powerful than you. And so, Lord, as I think of the spiritual spaces, the spiritual real estate that is represented in this room, where people go to, to jobs every day, where they have families, both at, at, home, at their home and extended families, spaces where the enemy has, has a foothold and a stronghold. Lord, Lord, you have equipped us to be able, you've <coughs> given us everything we need <coughs> to be able to take ground back. But we don't, we don't do it on our own. We do it with you. Lord, would you stir in our hearts? Would you take back more ground? Not, not that we can be in control of, and not even for our comfort, but Lord, for your glory, that you would be king over those spaces as you rightfully deserve to be, that the enemy would be pushed back and frustrated by the, the battles that happen because your people are trusting in you. We pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.